Please open your Bibles to the end of Luke chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 1 today. Last week we explored the biblical definition of being filled with the Holy Spirit or filled with the Spirit. Luke uses that phrase. And we wanted to make sure that we had a biblical understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And we talked last week about how much that phrase and that biblical idea has been used to mean so many different things in Christianity. Because the things of the Spirit seem to be more mystical to people and opens the doors for all kinds of interpretations of being filled with the Spirit. And certainly we like to link being filled with the Spirit to various experiences we've all had. And we're learning in the discipleship class to let the Bible interpret our experiences instead of interpreting the Bible in light of our experiences. Everybody has experiences. And nobody's trying to take your experiences away from you. But you need to learn to... Let the Bible inform and define your experiences. They can be wonderful gifts from God that strengthen your faith and cause you to praise the Lord for things that are hard to explain but can only be explained uh, if there is a God and if He is at work. And yet, without the boundaries the Bible provides, experiences could easily lead you to doubt and to wonder, why haven't I had that experience again? How come God's not working the same way he did last week or last month or last year? And so, biblically, we made the case that there are three instances of being filled with the Spirit. Three categories, if you will. The first category is the Spirit regenerates us. When He fills you, He regenerates you, makes you alive, and gives you the faith to believe the gospel. The gospel is unbelievable apart from the Spirit. Paul said it was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Not to be sacrilegious, but really a a dead Jew on a Roman cross. This is God. Yes, this is God. And it takes the Holy Spirit, not just to give you that head knowledge, but the heart knowledge that indeed this is my God and this is how he has saved me. And that he was risen on the third day and he ascended into heaven and is interceding for me at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you can't tell the Holy Spirit what to do. He comes and goes as he pleases, as the Father directs him. We can't make the Holy Spirit do anything. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He is sovereign. Once the Holy Spirit enters us, we place our faith in Jesus. He remains in us. He indwells us. And while he indwells us, he does very important work in and through us. He gives us assurance of our salvation. 
He illuminates our mind to understand the scriptures. He gives us spiritual gifts, which we'll talk about today a little more. And maybe most importantly, he sanctifies us. He gives us the power to say no to sin and yes to God. The second category the Bible gives us of the work of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit is captured in one verse, one verse only. Paul says to be filled with the Spirit. It's the only time in the Scriptures where there's a command to be for you to be filled. You said, well then, if the Holy Spirit comes and goes as He pleases, how do I fill myself with the Spirit? And we hear that word fill and we start thinking maybe of a cup and pouring water into it. And some people say, how can I be filled with the Spirit when I'm already filled with the Spirit? Did, did I lose some Spirit somewhere and I need a, a refill? And you, you hear people talk that way and pray that way. You know, I, I need to be refilled. It's a metaphor, alright? Don't take it too far. How do you understand spiritual things you can't see? The Bible gives us uh, metaphors, analogies. Maybe it's better, as Wayne Grudem says, to think of ourselves as a balloon. That when you're filled with the Spirit, we can expand and always get more the Spirit. How do you get infinite God, all of Him, in you? There's always room for more infinite God. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Fortunately, the Lord gave us a parallel passage in Colossians. Same language as Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, blessing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You go to Colossians, you get the same language, but instead of be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's how you be filled with the Spirit. Let the Word of the Spirit richly dwell in you, causing you to be sanctified as you obey the Scriptures. The Scriptures transform along with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we see in the Scriptures that being filled with the Spirit can enable the saints for a special task. And often that special task is to prophesy. And we're going to talk about prophecy today. When I was reading right before we took the Lord's Supper, that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then Paul goes into chapter 12 where he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And he goes on to teach about spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit distributes these spiritual gifts in the church. We each have spiritual gifts and they're to be used to edify and build up the body of Christ and accomplish the work of God here on earth. And nobody's to brag about their spiritual gift. We didn't ask for the gift, it was given to us. And all the gifts are important for the body to function, just as the hand is no more important than the foot or the eye. Those might be the more glamorous parts of the body, and nobody wants to be a liver, but try living without a liver. You're not going to get very far. So the, the body needs all of the gifts. And God determines who gets the gifts. And we need to be happy with the gifts He's given us 
and exercise those gifts to the glory of God. I read from 1 Corinthians 13 before we began to worship this morning because it went with the song, Love Never Fails. But boy, it sure set up the sermon. And as always, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't talk to the worship team beforehand and tell them what songs to pick. The Holy Spirit seems to pick those out just fine. And they inevitably, in, in an uncanny fashion, support the sermon. Again, there's one of those Holy Spirit things that um, I'm letting the Scriptures inform what I see. Why is it that week after week the songs prop up my sermon as if they were hand-picked? The Bible tells me because the Holy Spirit is at work in the giftedness of the musicians and the giftedness of the preacher, putting it all together for a unified worship service. Not that there's anything wrong with me calling Kathy and telling her I'd like these songs. And maybe uh, we could do that, but I sure like this way. It edifies me, it strengthens my faith when, when this happens. And so I looked for the Love Never Fails passage, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. And when you get down to verse 8, it says, If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away, they'll fade. They won't be necessary eventually. If there are tongues, and remember we said that was speaking in actual foreign languages so that people from other nations would hear the gospel, uh, they'll be done away with. Eventually we won't need that gift. We have linguists. We have Bible translators. Memorizing the Word of God, learning other languages, writing the Bible in other languages, and distributing the gospel around the world. If there is knowledge, this is the spiritual gift, a word of knowledge, they will be done away. That will fade as well. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I believe the perfect is referring to the completed word of God. The completed word of God. What is the gift of prophecy then? A couple weeks ago, I commended to you a website called gotquestions.org. I wanted to bring your attention there again. This is like a systematic theology online. It's like having that Wayne Grudem book that's like this thick online at your fingertips. I have not come across any of their teachings there that I'm in disagreement with, that is not to say that I have searched every single page on that website, but you start to get the feeling after you've read enough that we're reading the same Bible and interpreting it the same way. What a wonderful tool in the hands of God's people that you can type in a question, theological question, and a really uh, thorough but concise answer pops up And what an evangelistic tool. You can tell that they've so arranged this website. I don't know if you know anything about web presence. But if you make it onto the first page on Google, you're doing something right with your website. You you want your information to pop up before anyone else's. And gotquestions.org is always first, second, or third on Google when you type in a theological question. Imagine an unbeliever 
typing in a question about God or the Bible and good theologically sound answers at their fingertips. So I typed in, what is prophecy or what is the gift of prophecy? And boom, up, up comes gotquestions.org. And I wanted to share with you their answer because it's pretty much the way I w- would have answered it too. So, uh, But I don't want to plagiarize, so I'm telling you this is verbatim from the website. The spiritual gift of prophecy is listed among the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12.10 and Romans 12.6. The Greek word translated prophesying or prophecy Prophesy in both passages properly means to speak forth or declare the divine will to interpret the purposes of God or to make known in any way the truth of God which is designed to influence people. Many people misunderstand the gift of prophecy to be the ability to predict the future. While knowing something about the future or predicting the future or prophesying about future events may sometimes have been an aspect of the gift of prophecy. It was primarily a gift of proclamation. We think of the word prophecy, we immediately think predicting the future. And yet, when you take a statistical analysis of biblical prophecy, the majority of prophecy is just this proclaiming truths about God. Yes, there are predictive prophecies, especially in the Old Testament. But it is not the only thing that prophecy is. goes on to say, A pastor preacher who declares the Bible can be considered a prophesier in that he is speaking forth the counsel of God. You can prophesy. You can read your Bible and speak forth truths about God. With the completion of the New Testament canon, prophesying changed from declaring new revelation to declaring the completed revelation God has already given. Jude 3. You say, well, what verse? Jude only has one chapter, so that's verse 3. Speaks of the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Some translations say once and for all. Other parts of the Bible say this is all we need for faith and godliness. This is the completed New Testament revelation of God. This is all we need to know for life and godliness and future things. In other words, the faith to which we hold has been settled forever and it does not need the addition or refinement that comes from extra-biblical revelations. In fact, the book of Revelation closes with a warning that no one is to add or subtract from the prophetic word. Also note the transition from prophet to teacher in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. There were false prophets among the people. We remember that from Old Testament times. Lots of false prophets. And Peter says, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Isn't that interesting? He transitions from the word prophet to teacher. You would think he'd say, just as there were false prophets, there will be false prophets. And indeed, there are false prophets. Most of the cults have been started by false prophets. Men and women claiming to have direct revelation from God that contradicts the Bible. And boy, isn't that a powerful place to be. 
Boy, don't you have the upper hand when you claim to be getting direct revelation from God. Sadly, in a lot of counseling scenarios, especially with couples, either the husband or the wife will claim to be getting direct revelation from God while the other is searching the scriptures for truth. And the person getting the direct revelation, well, God told me, trumps the Bible. But it doesn't trump the Bible. You need to be very careful about saying, God told me this and God told me that. You are calling yourself a prophet on par with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the apostles, the writers of New Testament scripture. If God really told you that and you're proclaiming it, we ought to write it down and and staple it to the back. Now, if what you mean is God gave me a strong impression, you know, we'll say God laid it on my heart and I did preach a sermon on that. I was reading the scripture and God laid it on my heart to apply that scripture in this particular way. We would still say that if you're violating interpretive principles and making that scripture say nothing of what it ever was intended to say, I wouldn't feel comfortable with saying God used that scripture in your life to tell you to do this, that, or the other thing. And yet nobody wants to rob you of your experiences today. Are you hearing me? Nobody wants to rob you of your experiences. You have experiences. I have experiences. They're precious to me. But we are learning to interpret our experiences with the Scripture and not interpret the Scripture with our experiences. The Apostle Peter, who saw the transfiguration of Christ, said, we have the more sure word. Yeah, I saw with my own eyes, but the Bible, the Scriptures tell me Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thomas wanted to feel and experience Jesus' wounds. And Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. You don't need those experiences. You have the word of God. They're more accurate, more faithful than your experiences. And yet your experiences are used by God, can be used by God to encourage you and strengthen your faith. But if you really want your strength, faith, Faith, uh, your faith strengthen, go to the Word. It doesn't lie. The Scriptures cannot be broken. You could take those promises to the bank. Peter indicates that the Old Testament age had prophets, whereas the church age has teachers, the spiritual gift of prophecy in the sense of receiving new revelations from God to be proclaimed to others ceased with the completion of the Bible. This takes us to a teaching that is highly controversial because people misdefine it called cessationism. Hard to say, harder to understand. It doesn't need to be hard to understand. Cessationism does not teach that God has ceased to work miraculously. You get that? Cessationism And cessationists do not teach that God no longer works miraculously. If you are saved, he has worked a miracle in you. Amen? Amen. The greatest miracle of all. God still heals miraculously, but we see no apostolic gift of healing today. 
Read your New Testament. See the power he gave to his apostles to make the blind see, to touch the paralyzed, to cleanse lepers. People got healed just being in the shadow of the apostles at times. By the end of the book of Acts, and in the later epistles, we don't hear much about miraculous gifts. We hear a lot about teaching, sound doctrine, set up the church, appoint elders, be faithful until the return of Christ Jesus. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, take a little wine to settle your stomach. You think if he still had the gift of healing, there would be a much faster way to heal that. Be wary of those who claim that you can be healed if only you have enough faith. The faith healers who blame your lack of healing on your lack of faith. And that you can demonstrate your faith by putting more dollars in their pocket. My heart weeps and grieves over that black eye on the bride of Christ that these false healers, false prophets. And my heart trembles for them that they'll have to stand before the Lord and give an answer. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus said, away from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. And so be careful of those who claim to prophesy in the name of the Lord, those who claim they know the day the Lord is returning. The apostles asked Jesus, when are you coming back? And he says, the son of man doesn't even know. So what makes you think some two-bit carny prophet on TVN knows? Don't listen to those people. We recently had that one, I forget what his name was. He was wrong and a bunch of people liquidated their assets and sold everything to be ready for Christ's return. He was wrong And he said, oops, and he gave another date and he was wrong again. How long are people going to listen to these false prophets? Claiming that there's secret number systems in the Bible. And if you just know the code and add it up correctly, you can know all kinds of secret knowledge from your Bible. People, read your Bible the way you read any other book. Read it. Interpret it the way you would interpret a letter or an email I sent you. If there's figurative language, take it figuratively. If, if there's metaphorical language, take it metaphorically. But if it's plain, literal language, take it plain and literally. If it says repent, repent. There isn't any secret meaning there. Consider this. Most of the New, teach, New Testament is, is teaching, prophetic teaching. Very little predictive prophecy. Of course, when we get to John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, we get a lot of predictive prophecy. But there's no, like, New Testament book that is equivalent to Isaiah or Jeremiah or the Minor Prophets, where you just have pages and pages of prophetic future prophecy. And it's usually some kind of judgment on a nation, and in Israel's case, a future restoration During the time 
that prophecy was a revelatory gift. It was to be used for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of men, 1 Corinthians 14.3. The modern gift of prophecy, which is really more akin to teaching, still declares the truth of God. What has changed is that the truth of God today has already been fully revealed in His Word. While in the early church, it had not yet been fully revealed. Some modern prophets would say, amen to this. And when they prophesy and they say they're getting a word from God, they're really just quoting scripture. To which I would say, then just quote scripture. That way we don't accidentally put in any of your own ideas in there. The difference is when I prophesy, preach, I read the Word of God and I tell you this is how I'm interpreting it and you understand that you are getting an interpretation of Scripture. But when these so-called prophets say, I speak the Word of God and give an interpretation, it's not open to debate that the interpretation came from God as well. And we got to draw the line there. Somebody having delusions of grandeur. It shuts off all debate and conversation when you say, I got a word from the Lord and a private interpretation. Be careful when you say, God told me or God gave me a dream. Does God give dreams? He gave dreams in the Bible. I'm sure he's still giving dreams today. But did you dream recently of seven thin cows and seven fat cows and then seven years of feast and then seven years of famine came. Let's be careful that we don't equate our dreams to the kinds of dreams we see in the Bible. And don't forget how many dreams are really recorded in the Bible as predictive in the thousands and thousands of years of revelatory history. It's very few dreams. I dream every night. They can't all be predictive prophecy. And I see some people arrange their life that way. I had this dream. What does it mean? You know, we got to go do this or we can't do this. And then they have dreams about you and they call you and say, I had this dream about you. I think it means you need to not do this or you need to do that. That is a capricious way to live life. And I think it will undermine your faith, not strengthen it. So with much humility and with an open hand, say, I think maybe God gave me this dream. I don't know what to do with it, but... No utterance of man should be considered equal to or above the written word. We must hold to the word that God has already given and commit ourselves to sola scriptura, scripture alone. The scriptures are sufficient they are sufficient you don't need all this extra well I know the word of God says that but I want something else I want to know the will of God he's revealed his will if he wants to give you something else what makes you think if you're not being obedient to what he has revealed that he's going to give you extra so That is prophecy.
With that as our backdrop, let's look at Mary's prophetic utterance after she visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit. Remember, Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. She prophesies that Mary indeed is holding the Son of God and that she is blessed for her obedience and her faith. And then Mary begins to prophesy. Her song is often called the Magnificat. Taken from the first line of her song where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify, Magnificat. There's four of these prophetic hymns in Luke's Gospel. Mary uh, prophesies one, and then we're going to see Zacharias filled with the Spirit. And then the angels... And then Simeon. Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. By the way, no small side note, that pretty much ends the debate over whether or not Mary was sinless. Sinless people don't say, God is my Savior. Mary is a special woman, a unique woman, given the privilege of carrying the Son of God in her womb and giving birth to the Son of God and uh, uh, raising the Son of God. No one else but Mary had that privilege. She is a privileged woman. And she says later, all generations will count me blessed. She doesn't say they will call me blessed. That That is praising. That is worship. We count her blessed. We regard her as blessed. She is blessed. She got to carry the Son of God in her womb. But she is not co-redemptrix. This is a term you'll find in Roman Catholicism and some of the Eastern churches. Co-redemptrix, meaning her and Jesus are co-redeemers. It upsets me. It's just coming out of my mouth. She says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. She is not co-mediatrix either, meaning she's not the mediator between God and man. We have one mediator, Hebrews says, right? Jesus Christ. And yet, as I said last week, I think Protestant evangelicalism at times and in pockets have denigrated Mary. So she has an exalted position in history, but she's not exalted to the place of Christ. She goes on to say, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She refers to herself as a bond slave. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Not holy is my name or holy is our name. Holy is his name. By the way, uh, going back to verse 46 and 47, some people have used this verse to teach that uh, we're tripartite beings, meaning we're body, we're spirit, and we're soul. This is just Hebrew parallelism. Line one is synonymous with line two. She's using spirit 
and soul synonymously. She's not launching into some theological dissertation on whether we're three-part beings or two-part beings. In case anyone's wondering my personal conviction on that matter, we have two, two parts definitely, an outer man and an inner man. The outer man is dying and decaying and we'll get a new outer man when we're glorified in heaven. Amen and amen. And we... Our inner man is being renewed each day as we're in Christ and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Now, is the inner man spirit, soul, heart, mind? I think inner man is just the, the basket that all those terms go in. So I just refer to us as having two parts. I know there's three-part people who will want to come argue with me after church. There's the four-part people. And then there's always the five-part guy. Because he just wants to be different. Um, the more parts, the more confusion, and the farther we get away from what's really important. So, moving on, Mary goes on to say, His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. She's quoting Psalm 103, 17. When people prophesy... In the Lord, they often quote Scripture. That's what we need to do when we prophesy. Quote Scripture. She knows that the Messiah is the promised manifestation of God's mercy toward those who fear Him. And this phrase, to those who fear Him, then set up the rest of her psalm. She's going to talk about the humble and the poor. The people who fear God. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has exalted those who were humble. God opposes the proud, right? But he gives grace to the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. Psalm 107, 9. And I believe this hunger is spiritual hunger. As Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your, your wafer isn't going to keep you from being hungry. You're probably already wanting lunch. It's 12. Don't look. I'll look for you. But the body and blood of Jesus Christ spiritually feeds us so we're never hungry again. Amen? I don't need anything other than Jesus. He's the appetizer, the main course, and the dessert. He's, he's the whole banquet. And he has sent away the rich empty-handed. Not so much an allusion to the actual rich, but those who think they have it all, but don't have God. Right? Jesus said to the rich young ruler, it's harder for a camel to enter the, through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Rich people don't think they need God. They, they, they feel quite a... Not all rich people. We're generalizing. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. She's taking the focus off of herself and on to God and his promises and his covenant that is going to be fulfilled in this baby she is carrying. 
Now, in the meantime, whatever happened to Zacharias? When last we left him, he was dumbstruck. He was mute as a punishment for his disbelief. In the same way that Abraham and Sarah didn't believe God would give them a child, Zacharias' disbelief was rebuked by God. And the, the punishment and the sign was that he couldn't speak for months. He couldn't speak. What a sight that must have been. You have like an 80-year-old wife, maybe, dealing with, with pregnancy, and your husband can't speak. Actually, you're probably safer and better off not speaking. <laughs> Get yourself in trouble. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they waited until the day of circumcision as, um, as God commanded in the law of Moses to name the baby on the eighth day. I asked for a show of hands for service. How many people waited a few days to name one of your kids? Just... Just a, just a couple out there. So that's kind of rare, but that was the norm then, to wait. We waited a little while to name Aaron. He was supposed to be David, but he didn't look like a David. We were waiting for him to open his eyes so we could look into his eyes, and I think you get a good idea of what your kid's name should be when you see their eyes. So eight days later, And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who was called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Last time, his response to God was doubt. This time, praise to God. James says everyone should be slow to speak. Slow to anger, quick to listen. Fear came on all those living around them. They knew something supernatural was going on. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with them. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Spirit. There it is, there's that phrase. He was filled with the Spirit. Does that mean he was saved in that moment? No, we're probably looking at the third usage of filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit for a specific task to prophesy. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So that, that part of the prophecy is speaking of this this child, Mary's child, this messianic child. He's not talking about his own child at this point. Now he switches to prophecy about John. And you, and you, child, must be holding his baby. Can you imagine the tears in his eyes? And the, I mean, uh, the, holding my, all four of my, my infant children. Just the pride and the joy and all the... What comes next? The excitement and hope of this new life. But here is Zacharias filled with the Spirit, being unable to talk for months, and now holding the child and knowing what he is going to be. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who here wants a John? All your kids can be a John. They can all prophesy. They don't have to be Old Testament prophets. By the definition of prophecy, they can all prophesy Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Come, meet my God. Put your faith in Him. He will forgive you and adopt you into His family. I must decrease. He must increase. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is prophecy And we can prophesy. We can read scripture and proclaim it and pray it right back to God. I'll model that for you. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, as we read your prophecy in the Bible, the word of God, Mary prays, my soul exalts the Lord. Our soul exalts you, O Lord. Our spirit rejoices in you, Jesus, God, our Savior. Thank you for having regard for the humble state of your bond servant. We were once slaves to sin and now slaves to righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. From this time on, all generations will count us blessed. Because we are loved by God, chosen by Him, adopted into His family. There is no greater blessing. For the Mighty One has done great things for us, and holy is Your name. Have mercy upon this generation, 
and the next, to all those who fear the Lord. Continue to do mighty deeds. Bring down the haughty and bring up those who are broken in spirit. Have mercy on us and be faithful to us just as you've been faithful to Abraham and his descendants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.